Ronald Reagan was president 81 to 89, and a friend of mine was Dr. Bob Billings. Bob Billings ran for Congress in Indiana. Bob Billings helped start the Hiles Anderson High School uh, in um, Indiana, and um, he ran for Congress, and he garnered so many votes, he almost beat the incumbent. So Ronald Reagan said, boy, I'd, I need to be able to get votes like that in Indiana next time around for the second time around. So he called Bob Billings, who's a, who was an evangelist, and uh, he brought him to Washington and made him assistant secretary of education to communicate between the federal government and all religious schools. And um, President Reagan decided he wanted to bring down the evil empire. So he had a four-point plan to bring down the evil empire. Number one, we're going to have war games. The CIA has already told us that our obsolete weapons are better than anything the Soviet Union has. So we're going to have war games with all of our allies, and we're going to show these obsolete weapons and how effective they are. And he said the second thing we're going to do is we're going to release all of the top counterfeiters from prison. And, uh, and we're going to remove the penalty. They're, they're going to be released if they will counterfeit billions of rubles, make them look almost exactly like a real ruble, and we're going to flood the Soviet economy and bring it to its knees. They won't be able to survive. The third thing is Colonel Ollie North is going to work with some of our congressional leaders. The Congress will not pass a bill to allow me to fund the Strategic Defense Initiative. You know what that is? The, uh, the uh, media called it Star Wars. Somebody launches a missile anywhere on the surface of the earth, the president can activate a satellite that can shoot it down within 30 seconds of launch once they determine its direction. Star Wars is very effective, so they mentioned that. And then President Reagan told Bob Billings, he said, I want you to bring 300 preachers to Washington, and I want to meet with them personally. We want to feed them, and I want to tell them that we need for them to smuggle a million Bibles apiece into the Soviet Union because George Washington said you cannot enslave a Bible-reading people. So Bob Billings and I worked with President Reagan to establish what we call Bibles for Russia. And once the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, I still had a lot of contacts in Russia. And I had traveled to, over the Soviet Union, all the different states, the Ukraine, Latvia, Belarus, all those places. And I said, wouldn't it be great if we could continue this? So now, Bibles for Russia, my wife and I and my daughter and a couple of other people are on the board. We take nothing out of Bibles for Russia. The only expenses that are paid out of Bibles for Russia are printing expenses and expenses we have to pay our attorney and, our, and the government in order to keep our organization functional. So all the money that comes in from Bibles for Russia, we have two Bible colleges that are operable right now in Russia, and they are training the next generation of young people. We have a seminary in Catherineburg called the Seminary of the Urals that's training people for advanced theological studies. We also, we don't, we ha don't have orphanages ourselves, but we have a ministry into the orphanages, and then we have established a summer camp where we take uh, elementary kids for two weeks, we take uh, junior kids for two weeks and senior kids for two weeks, win them to Christ, and then try to get them into the Bible school so that they can uh, go out and carry on the ministry in Russia. So those are some of the things that I've done. For many years, I've I worked with Harold Boyd 
Uh, I think uh, 25 years we traveled to Haiti. Harold had been there probably 60 years. He was going to Haiti when it wasn't fashionable to do so. And uh, he had built 50 churches, founded 50 churches there. And uh, right now in uh, the former Soviet Union, the organization that I had, Bibles for Russia, is presently involved in uh, church planting. And even we even continue to publish Bibles. But now we don't have to smuggle them. We can publish them right there in Russia. And it's a whole lot cheaper than having to do that. So that's some of the things we've been involved in. And um, I know that you're getting ready to kick off your uh, faith promise. And I, I want my message tonight to touch on that. And um, Pastor, if you are considering any other uh, missionary projects, I'd be more than happy to, to share more information with you about what's happening in, in um, Russia right now and how God is working there. But I've asked our song leader to come and have you stand because I'm going to be speaking to you. And it would be a long time to put both of these together. Thank you, sir. Zero five, rescue the perishing. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from sin and the grave. We pour the airy one, lift up the fallen. Tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save on the last. Rescue the perishing, duty demands it. Strength for thy labor, the Lord will provide. Back to the narrow way, patiently win them. Tell the poor wanderer a Savior has died. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Jesus is merciful, Jesus will save. Okay, thank you. Be seated. Appreciate that so much. I'll tell you, when I drove up and uh, saw your church building today, this is impressive. If I were living over here and I drove down the street and I saw this church facility, I'd say, boy, that's impressive. I think I'll go see what that's all about. And then to come in and hear the kind of music you have and uh, know your pastor. I want to compliment you for being here on uh, Sunday night. Uh, one of the things that's been a blessing in my ministry, no matter where I've pastored and no matter how many people we've had, I've pastored churches running hundreds, and I've pastored churches running handful. And we have the same crowd Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And uh, Dr. Robertson used to tell us years ago, three to thrive, three to thrive, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, three to thrive. So I've always tried to emphasize that, and uh, <clears throat> uh, I don't know if I told your pastor this, but I, when I was a student at Dallas Seminary years ago, I set a goal to spend a minimum of 30 hours a week in Bible study and prayer for all three sermons that I preach every week. And one of my professors said, if your people are going to be spending 40 hours a week on their job, you should be able to spend at least 30 hours a week on yours. 
And I said, yeah, but there's more to do than study. I mean, we got hospital visits and all this. He said, well, he said, that'll bring you up to 40 real quickly, you know. So <clears throat> I want to speak to you. Uh, something has to do with missions tonight. Acts chapter 1. Jesus, you know, had risen from the grave. And the disciples were really hopeful when they realized that he was appearing to them after his resurrection and uh, they said unto him in uh, Acts 1.6, they said, When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Well, that reveals to us a problem if we stop and think about it. Uh, their preoccupation was with something material, material kingdom. Remember what Jesus said when he stood before Pilate? My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, you'd be in real trouble. My people would already be up in arms coming after me, coming after you. But uh, shortly, Jesus is getting ready to ascend to the Father. And before doing so, he wanted to give them a package. <clears throat> I like to think of it this way. He meets with his disciples and he said, okay, I'm giving you a package and there are a lot of things in this package. I want you to open the package and take them out one by one. So that's what we're going to do tonight. And being an English teacher, I have started all of these sections with alliterated words. So they all start with a P. So let's look at number one, preoccupation. Uh, what you're preoccupied with in your life is going to affect everything that you do. That is, that's what your focus is, and your focus is going to dictate to you um, the first thing we notice here is that Jesus was not appearing to set up his earthly kingdom. He'd come to do that and they rejected him, remember? Now he was building his church. He said in Matthew 16, 18, he said, I will build my church. So preoccupation with the material, one of the problems is, as soon as you get preoccupied with the material, it tends to distract you from the spiritual. Because the material is visible, it's right there before you. Jesus was focusing on his non-material kingdom. In John 8, 23, he told the Pharisees, I am not of this world. And then in John uh, 15, 36, he told uh, Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. So Jesus was not appearing to set up his earthly kingdom. Secondly, he was not appearing to satisfy their curiosity. Look at verse 7. He said uh, unto them, It is not for you to know the time or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. So you come in contact with people, I do, and almost constantly people are asking me this. When is this going to happen? What is going to happen when this time occurs? What and when? Jesus warned them about preoccupation with the material world, and also with preoccupation with what only the Father knows. I don't know about you, but I've demanded of God on numerous occasions that He tell me more than He told me, and then uh, years later I was glad He didn't, because uh, if I'd have known what I was going to have to go through, I probably would not been, have been submissive to His will. But these are two things that Satan wants to help us to be preoccupied with, and that is the material world and our curiosity about things we don't know about. So preoccupation with the wrong things, that is the first thing that Jesus takes out of the package to warn them about, preoccupation with the wrong things. Second thing, he pulls out of the package power. 
He says in verse 8, you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. So when Jesus warned them about being preoccupied with the insignificant, he also promised them power to avoid that. We could never say, a Christian could never say this. He could never say, I can't to any command that God gives. You just can't do it because the power is already made available. So I define power this way, supernatural enablement for whatever our natural world throws at us. Supernatural enablement for whatever our natural world throws at us. This morning I preached on fear in my church and I told people, I said, you know, the world is really a scary place when you stop and think about it. Jesus gave us a job to do, and he gave us this job to accomplish in a world that's totally hostile to every aspect of it. And yet he told us to go do it anyway. We have to live in this natural world until we die, but our real citizenship is in heaven, from which we look for the coming of the Lord. So we are citizens of a spiritual kingdom, but we have to function every day in an earthly kingdom. So we're promised in 2 Corinthians 5, 6-8, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And he was constantly trying to avoid on his own the uh, promised power for living or ignoring the promised power for living. Listen to what he said in Philippians 3.10. Here's a man that has spent, ever since his conversion, he had done nothing but tried to minister as God led him. And then... He is in prison in Rome, two years on death row. And while he's there, he writes back to the church at Philippi, which seems to have once again picked up financial support of his mission work. And he writes to them in Philippians 3.10. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. So we don't want to miss the connection here. It's very easy to just read the Bible and miss the connection, but catch this. The shared sufferings and the potential for death, that's the result of being in the material world. But catch this. The power of his resurrection, Paul was talking about, is a provision from the spiritual world for us while we're in the material world. Isn't that amazing? So let's revisit the concept of preoccupation. If I'm preoccupied with the material world, I restrict my access to His power even if I'm saved. There are a lot of saved people not living in the power of God. Um, also, if I am preoccupied with the material world, I restrict my ability to function within this world that He's called me to minister in. So I have two problems if I become preoccupied because I, I lose contact with power. So the agent through which our power comes, he says in verse 8, he says, after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. Now, I think, I believe that on the day of Pentecost when God's Spirit came upon them, the rest of the promises that Jesus made relative to the Holy Spirit were also fulfilled. <clears throat> I don't want to be considered a theological heretic <laughs> But stop and think about it with me for a moment. In John 14, 17, Jesus had been speaking to the disciples. In chapter 14, he talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit. 
In chapter 15, he uses the metaphor of the vine. And in chapter 16, he goes back to talking about the Holy Spirit. So John is actually recording these things as they are happening. Here's what Jesus said in John 14, 17. He said that he wouldn't leave us comfortless. Whenever he left, he was going to send another comforter. And he says, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not. He's not material. Neither knoweth him, but ye know him. For he dwelleth with you right now, then future tense, and shall be in you. So the Holy Spirit's always been present. He was present in the Old Testament, but he never indwelt anybody in the Old Testament as far as we know. So what, what he seems to be talking about here is that when the power of the Spirit of God fell on the day of Pentecost, which will occur in chapter 2, most, most of us think only about the Spirit coming upon them, coming upon them. But there is an interesting statement made years later by the Apostle Paul that seems to indicate that in addition to the Spirit of God coming upon them dramatically, that he also immediately indwelt that group like he would all believers from that point on. Let me read you what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Okay, Pentecost, the baptism of the Spirit. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and listen to this, have been all made to drink into one Spirit. So it appears to me that what Paul is saying here, that the instant a person gets saved, the instant he repents of sin and trusts Christ as Savior, not only is he baptized supernaturally into a body of Christ worldwide, but at the same time, the Spirit of God moves into him. He drinks in the Holy Spirit and becomes indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So I think a lot of promises Jesus talked about in chapter 14 of John and chapter 16 of John were probably fulfilled on that day of Pentecost. I think even the sealing of the Holy Spirit, which he talks about in Ephesians, that we're sealed by this Holy Spirit. The seal was a symbol of authority. And when God, when Rome sealed the tomb, God had an angel unsealed. And as one of my preacher friends said, uh, he didn't move the stone away to let Jesus out. He moved the stone away so we could see he had already gone, you know. So the power is available. It's up to us to implement the power in our lives. I was in a pastor's prayer breakfast recently, and Pastor Dexter Taylor was speaking on this passage, and he made a statement. He said, what good is power if you don't use it? The illustration he gave, he said, I love to hunt. And he said, the other day, he said, I was out in the woods, and he said, uh, uh, he said uh, suddenly I looked, and there was this great big buck with a full rack coming across here. And I said, my, isn't he beautiful? And I've got this powerful gun in my hand here. And I've got the sight on it. And all I've got to do is level it on him and pull the trigger. And the, I'm so enamored with the deer, he just goes on his way. And he said, I had the power, but I didn't use it. And I think we have power and we don't use it. Are we using the power we have? The key to using available power is real simple. Somebody asked me one day, well, how, how can God's power work through me? I said, it's very easy. You just submit. You, you don't have anything to do with the actual force of the power. You, all you have to do is become the channel. That's all you have to do. 
So Jesus left the disciples a package before ascending. The first thing he took out of the package was the warning about preoccupation with the wrong thing. The second thing he pointed out was power. The third thing he mentioned was purpose. People with the right preoccupation will maximize their use of God's power so that they can accomplish God's purpose for them. He says in verse 8, And you shall be witnesses unto me. Isn't it interesting that God saves us and leaves us here on earth for an undesignated period of time? If His only purpose was to save us and take us to heaven, we'd be better off to die immediately after we got saved. But He says, the reason I saved you and the reason I'm empowering you is so that whatever the world throws at you, whatever threats it makes, whatever antagonism it does, you have the power to talk about me, to witness of me. You remember the Great Commission, rather, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all things whatsoever. I have told you. Well, you know, the interesting thing about the Great Commission is they couldn't do what he told them to do. Stop and think about it. That handful of people he had there, they could not win the world. So why did he tell them that? And the idea is generational. Every family is supposed to train its children to be witnesses. I remember taking my son and my daughter out soul winning with me. And I remember when we had the bus routes and I'd take my son and my daughter out on bus routes and I'd teach them how to witness. I'd teach them how to answer questions that people throw at them and, and I got them involved. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is the Jewish model for child training. And uh, I call it Operation Saturation. Because when the children are going to bed, you talk about these things. When they get up in the morning, you talk about these things. When you get ready to eat, you talk about these things. When you walk out in the world, you talk about these things. Operation saturation. So do you know your purpose? Your purpose is to be a witness. I told our folks this morning, I said, do you realize that if every person seated here this morning made it his responsibility to get one more person in this church by the end of the year, we'd double our attendance. Wouldn't you like to see twice as many people? Yeah. In Acts 1.8, the word for witness is the word martus, from which we get the English word martyr. And the point is, we are to be a witness even if it leads us up to death. There should be no limit placed on our witness. In other words, the true witness doesn't relent under the maximum threat that comes from the material world. Material world's a scary place. Material world, Jesus said, they hated me, so they're going to hate you. You stand up and start speaking the truth. He said, they're going to get angry with you because an environment saturated with error is going to always be antagonistic to truth. Have you ever noticed this about error and truth? Error always tries to camouflage itself as truth, but truth never tries to camouflage itself as error. You ever notice that? And we look at what the Word of God says about that. So our purpose is to manifest the person of Jesus Christ through our own lives 
for as long as we live. In Philippians 1.20, he said, according to my earnest expectation, remember he's in prison now, death row, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also in Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. I don't know. Somebody asked me, he said, would you be willing to die for Christ? I said, I don't know. I said, I would like to think that the grace I would need for that moment would be there when I needed it. I don't need grace to die for him right now. Not unless somebody pulls out a gun. Then I'll need grace to die, right? I don't know. Our main purpose is to represent the Lord Jesus Christ to a world that's headed to an eternal hell. And we're to do this by relying upon the power he promised through his resurrection. That takes us right to the moment of our death. Uh, however, it occurs if we have not placed our own limitation upon God's purpose for us. One of the great dangers is self-imposed limitations. And there should be none because Jesus said, all power is given unto me. In prison for two years on the death row in Rome, Paul could affirm his purpose he said in 2 Timothy 4, 6, he said, For I am now ready to be offered in the time of my departure is at hand. The word offered is an interesting Greek word. It was used of a libation that was poured out to a God. It also was used of devoting one's life or devoting one's blood in a sacrifice. The word ready is an interesting word. It means even now at this moment, and it is an unnecessary word in Greek grammar. So if it's unnecessary in Greek grammar, it's always emphatic. He says, I am now, yes, even now, at this moment, ready to be sacrificed. Emphatic. You see, purpose ought not to change under the threat of execution. If the, if the world can put any pressure on us to change our purpose of being a witness for Christ, then we were never a witness for Christ. So do you see how great a package Jesus had left them? And the interesting thing about it is he left them to us. They were citizens of a spiritual world, and they were only functioning in a material world. So now we open the package again. We have preoccupation, we have power, we have purpose. Now we look at people. God has chosen to leave us here after our salvation because He has voluntarily used people to reach people. Isn't that interesting? You and I are tools. We're servants. Acts 1-4, being assembled together with them, people. Our Savior was known to associate with a common man. And Abraham Lincoln said, God must have loved the common man. He created so many of them. <laughs> So God's power is made available to any submissive believer who seeks to live by God's purpose for his life. This is all submission. Most of the 12 were common people. The fact that God can empower anyone to carry out his main purpose to me is an amazing thing. One of the greatest witnesses that I ever saw was a young man with cerebral palsy in a church that I pastored and it was hard to understand, and he had all kinds of jerky movements because of his muscular problem. But he was constantly telling people, 
about what Jesus Christ had done for him. In my over 64 years in ministry, I've been blessed by hundreds of people who were what we would call the average person. Well, God looks for common people, people who are preoccupied with the spiritual world. God's looking for people who are submissive enough to rely upon His power, not their own ingenuity. And God is looking for people who are willing to adopt and live by His purpose for their lives. Spiritually focused people who are using God's power to accomplish His purpose in a material world. Here's a fifth thing we pull out of this package. We call it places. You and I have a carnal tendency to judge people by the places they serve and the results they have accomplished. In other words, in this material world, we have been brainwashed to think quantitatively, even in the church. And we think, one pastor came to me one time and he said, "Uh, I hate to see you wasting your life up here in this dinky little church in Hudson Falls, New York. If I were to call this man's name, you'd know it, okay? One of the most prominent preachers, a good, good friend of mine. He said, why don't you let me put your name in this pulpit committee out here in Arkansas. The church is running 2,500. They have 10 buses. They have a Christian school with 350 people in it. Your wife can work in the Christian school. And anybody who pastors this church, his sermons get printed in the beep. And, uh, <laughs> and he said, and they have a parsonage, five bedrooms with a huge lake out there, a power boat you can use any time. And he said, there's a man in the church that runs the dealership for Chevrolet and he gives the pastor and his wife a brand new Chevrolet every year and uses it as a write-off for his business. And he starts you out at $65,000 a year. And this was like 15 years ago. And he said, they pay $200 a month into your IRA. And he said, what do you think about that? And I said, Pastor, I love you. I really do. I said, you've had a major influence on my life. And I said, I've enjoyed preaching in Bible conferences with you. And I said, but I hope you won't be offended when I tell you, you just mentioned all of the things that I would never consider in going to a church. And he says, well, I just don't want you. I said, you called this ministry that I, you called this dinky. He said, I didn't mean that. I said, if you didn't mean it, you wouldn't have said it. And he said, are you upset with me? I said, no, I'm not upset with you. I said, I love you. I've known you for 35 or 40 years. We've preached in conferences together. I said, I'm just surprised that you would make that kind of approach to me. I thought you knew me better than that. Well, we think quantitatively. Our judgment at the judgment seat of Christ is going to be qualitative. If you look at the judgment seat of Christ passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, our evaluation is going to be based not upon how much gold and silver and how much wood, hay, and stubble, but whether it was gold and silver or wood, hay, and stubble. I have a friend of mine that took a job working in a logging company, eventually purchased a logging company, pastor of a church in a small community. The, uh, the size of the church is around 10. And um, uh, the uh, community is a crossroads. And it's such a small community that the sheriff's office, the mayor's office, and uh, all the other offices are in the same grocery store 
and, and the post office. But man, God has really done some amazing things with him. He doesn't get written up. If I called his name, you wouldn't even know who he is. But man, he's been faithful to the Lord. God has blessed him. So um, the successful ministry, not every ministry can be called successful if the material standard is what you're using to judge it. But God told Joshua, the only time the word success appears in the King James Bible is in Joshua 1.8. He said, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. So it appears to me that Joshua 1.8, success is defined as obedience to Scripture. So that means if God is an equitable God, and I believe He is, that means every person here, regardless of your gifts, regardless of your ability, regardless of your education, regardless of your social status, you can be successful just by doing what God tells you to do in the Bible. So success is, is available to everybody. Well, <clears throat> at the end of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 24, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. You see, the place that God has for me is better for me than any place somebody else thinks that I ought to be. The place that God has for me is better for me than the place I think I ought to be. It's God's place. Jesus gave a variety of places. He said, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. I don't have time to go into it, but if you take each one of those things, you can break each one of them down into a type of society. So when God sends one person to an isolated jungle tribe and another to a large historical church in a thriving city, neither one of them is more or less successful in ministry than the other. Neither of them is more prominent in the eyes of God than another. Maybe more prominent in the eyes of those of us who judge materially, quantitatively. In the parable Jesus gave in Matthew 25, despite the outcomes, and the outcomes all were varied, Jesus focused on the faithfulness of each of the servants. So the place you serve may seem to be small and insignificant to your critics. But remember this. There is no such thing as an insignificant place in the will of God. There just isn't. If you're in the will of God, you definitely are not in any insignificant place. The chief quality where you serve is the chief quality where everybody else serves, and Jesus identified it as faithfulness. We have a lady in our church that does nothing but clean up messes. And I saw her the other day, and I said, you know, Charlene, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate all you do. I said, clean the windows, clean the glass in the doors, clean the trash, take the stuff out and put it in the dumpster, wash the dishes. I said, I said you, you are a major contributor to our church. And she said, well, I don't feel like it. And I said, then the problem's on your end, not not on God's end, certainly not on ours. I said, I, I'm amazed, I said, at all you do. What a package Jesus left. Well, let me pull one more item out of the package. I call this promises. Look at verses 9 through 11. 
And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, You men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. You know, of course, that a promise is only as reliable as a person who makes it, right? God's angels seem to be pretty reliable. You go back through the Bible and all the places where angels delivered messages from the throne, it was very accurate. And Jesus ascended. These two men stood by and said, you know, don't, don't stand here gazing, you know, like this. Is, he said, he's coming again. You think this is something? Wait till he comes back. That's going to really be something. So if we are preoccupied with the spiritual world, and if we implement the power that's in this package he provided, and if we operate according to his purpose for us, and if we accept ourselves as common people in need of everything that he offers, and if we willingly submit to the place he appoints us to serve, then we can anticipate his promise when he comes back. We're going to be rewarded based upon how he evaluates us not on how somebody else evaluates us. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for sending Jesus to die on the cross, shedding his blood, wash away our sins. Lord, we thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I have to admit that I've been very lax many times in using that available power. Perhaps others here tonight can say the same thing. Lord, we're getting ready to go into a missions conference. We're getting ready to trust you to bring in money to help missionaries worldwide. And I pray that tonight as we think about this passage in Acts chapter 1, we'll recognize that when we come to faith promise, that the power of God can help us when we decide to trust you for what we're going to be committing to faith promise. And Lord, if there's anyone here tonight that needs to come to the altar as we open the altar, we pray the pastor will come and be able to handle the invitation and talk to anyone here that comes for any purpose. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts in a very special way in this moment, we pray in Jesus' name.